You're listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation podcast. On Monday, April 30th, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation co-sponsored a J.F. Kennedy Jr. Forum event titled Full Participation, Making Every Voice Count. Eric Holder, former United States Attorney General and current partner at Covington and Burling, spoke. Arkan Fung, HKS Academic Dean and Winthrop Laughlin McCormick Professor of Citizenship and Self-Government, moderated. Good evening, and welcome to the John F. Kennedy Jr. Forum. My name is Ryan Davis, and I am the chair of the JFK Jr. Forum Committee here at the Institute of Politics. Before we begin, please note the exit doors, which are located on both the park side and the JFK street side of the forum. In the event of an emergency, please walk to the exit closest to you and congregate in the JFK park. Please also take a moment now to silence your cell phones. You can join the conversation tonight online by tweeting with the hashtag HolderForum, which is also listed in your program. Immediately following this afternoon's, this afternoon's forum, the Institute of Politics will be hosting two different events. First, the former mayor of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Michael Nutter, will speak with students in Latour 275. Second, in Latour 166, there will be a conversation on infrastructure, transportation, and energy with former Obama Deputy Assistant and National Economic Council Deputy Director Jason Miller with former IOP Fellow Johannes Abraham. There's information on both events on the insert in your program and snacks will be served. Please take your seats now and join me in welcoming our guests, former Attorney General Eric Holder, Professor Arkan Fung, and Dean of the Harvard Kennedy School, Doug Almendorf. Good afternoon, everyone. It is my great pleasure to introduce the Edwin L. Godkin Lecture. The Godkin Lecture was established at Harvard in 1903, a good deal before the founding of the Kennedy School. The lecture honors Edwin Godkin, who was a 19th century Irish-born American journalist who founded the political and cultural magazine The Nation and was editor-in-chief of the New York Evening Post. The inaugural Godkin Lecture in 1903 was introduced by Charles William Eliot, then the president of Harvard, who praised Godkin's, quote, remarkable vigor and great candor and unremitting devotion to lofty ideals of public duty, unquote. More than 100 years later, the ideals of public duty remain a central focus of Harvard and of the Kennedy School. Many distinguished public leaders have spoken in the Godkin Lecture about public duty, including both the duties of leaders and the duties of citizens. Today's Godkin Lecturer is an ideal person to speak with us about public duty because of his own service as a very distinguished public leader and because of his continuing efforts to ensure that all Americans have a fair opportunity to exercise their duties. We are honored today to be joined by former Attorney General Eric Holder. Eric Holder is an internationally recognized leader on a broad range of legal issues and a tireless advocate for civil rights. He served in the U.S. government for more than 30 years. He began his legal career at the public integrity section of the Justice Department. 
1988, President Reagan appointed him to be a superior court judge in the District of Columbia. In 1993, he stepped down from the bench to accept an appointment from President Clinton as U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia. And he held that position until he became Deputy Attorney General in 1997. From 2009 to 2015, Eric Holder served as the 82nd Attorney General of the United States and the first African-American to ever hold that position. When President Obama nominated him in 2008, the president praised his, quote, toughness and independence, end quote. As Attorney General, he vigorously defended voting rights, including the enforcement of the Voting Rights Act. In 2014, Eric Holder was named to Time Magazine's list of 100 most influential people for his tireless work, quote, to ensure equal justice, unquote. The National Legal Aid and Defender Association has honored him with the Justice John Paul Stevens Lifetime Achievement Award. The National Urban League named him a recipient of their Living Legend Award. And the NAACP honored him with its Thurgood Marshall Lifetime Achievement Award. Eric Holder is currently a partner at Covington and Burlington and serves as chairman of the National Democratic Redistricting Committee, which is tackling the problem of gerrymandering. Eric Holder will be in conversation today with our very own Archon Fung, the academic dean, and the Winthrop Laughlin McCormick Professor of Citizenship and Self-Government at the Kennedy School. Archon's research, as you may know, explores ways to improve the quality of democratic governance with a focus on public participation, deliberation, and transparency. He co-directs the Transparency Policy Project and leads democratic governance programs at our Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation. We're on for a very uh, exciting uh, hour. Uh, please join me in welcoming Archon Fung and our distinguished guest, Eric Holder. Thanks very much, Doug, for that introduction. And thank you, Attorney General Holder, for uh, spending this uh, afternoon with us. Um, Good to be here. I thought I'd ask if you... How much do you have to pay for the seats up there? <laughs> <laughs> we give them away. Oh, okay. <laughs> Way up there. So uh, I thought I'd begin with a couple of questions or a few questions, and then we'd open it up to the audience. Sure. First question is, uh, after you left uh, the federal government, you could have chosen to work on many, many civic issues, but you're, you decided to focus a lot of your public leadership and energy on the issue of redistricting. It's not the most obvious issue to focus on. It's kind of a democracy wonk issue compared to something like racial uh, equality or social justice or the anti-Trump resistance. So why redistricting? Why did you pick that issue to focus on? Well, I, I picked redistricting um, because it really is kind of the foundation for all the other things that you talked about. Um, if you want to have uh, a fair voting system that has the ability to shape the direction of the country, it seems to me that you've got to have, well, we should have, a, um, a redistricting effort done in 2021 that makes a battle between conservative, Republican ideas, uh, Democratic, progressive ideas, um, and let's see you know, who wins. I think if the lines are drawn fairly, that um, Democrats and progressives will do just fine. And that necessarily means, therefore, that you will have an impact on the other issues that you, that you mentioned, um, you know, racial issues, um, voting issues, um, you know, issues around LGBT rights, um, choice, 
gun laws. Uh, all of these things, I think, are a function of who actually sits in our state legislatures and who sits in Congress. Thank you. And, so who's, and who's in the White House. And who's <laughs> of course. Well, it's not, uh, that's not quite part of what I'm supposed to be, but you know, that, that, that matters as well, as, as, as we, we have seen. As we're finding out. Yes. In a March 27th article in the Washington Post, uh, it was that article was reporting on the Maryland redistricting case right. that's been since fused with a Wisconsin case that the Supreme Court is considering. In a deposition for that uh, case, former Governor Martin O'Malley said that, as elected governor, I did my duty within the meets and bounds of Maryland law to organize redistricting in favor of the Democratic Party. He said... Quote, if the reconfigured district would be more likely to elect a Democrat than a Republican, yes, this was clearly my intent. So he, saw, he thought it was his duty as a Democratic governor to gerrymander to advantage the Democrats. I know a lot of other Democrats who think, uh, think the same way, that the Republicans are doing it, where they have state-level le uh, majorities in the legislature, where Democrats have a majority. Of course, we should gerrymander to favor the Democratic Party. Uh, do you agree with that sentiment? Uh, what would you say to yeah. people with that kind of point of view? Uh, that's not consistent with the aims of the NDRC. It's not why I signed up to head the NDRC. Um, I'm not here to gerrymander for Democrats. And um, there are people within the party who have been taken aback by some of the things that we have um, advocated and the ways in which we say districts ought to be configured. You know, we've got an 85% Democratic district that is really gerrymandered. Well, you know, maybe that ought to come down to something that is more competitive. And therefore, Democrats would have to have a, you know, a serious, potentially have a serious um, challenger come, um, you know, come November, state level, con congressional level, whatever. Um, given all the negatives that we have seen associated in this decade, with, uh, with Republican gerrymandering, and they were far better at it than Democrats were in, in 2011. Um, I, I, that's not, you know, uh, given the arc of my career and the things that have been important to me, um, that, that would be inconsistent with um, who I hope I am and uh, what my work has, uh, has stood for. So this is not an attempt to gerrymander on behalf of, uh, of Democrats. I, I think, you know, Governor O'Malley is, is quite... Um, honest in what he said there, and I would disagree with what Maryland uh, Democrats did to create that uh, to create that district, even if it costs Democrats some congressional seats. And yeah, as I said, you know, I, 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 don't, I, I think that was wrong. But I think what you know the Dem what the Republicans did in Wisconsin, Ohio, North Carolina, Texas, you know, that was wrong um, as well. And, you, you know, if Princeton did a study, um, and I'm from Columbia, this is Harvard, but Princeton, you know, you know, you know, um, <laughs> you know this is a kind of a third-rate opinion, but it's the best we could do. Um, That's where we are oh, now. Oh, so we have some Princeton people. <laughs> huh? All right, all right. How'd you let, all right, anyway, um, <laughs> Princeton said that what the uh, Republicans did in 2011 was the worst gerrymandering uh, of the last 50 years. Uh, and so, you, yeah, you've got that Democratic district, you know, one district um, in Maryland that I think was done inappropriately. But compared to what uh, Republicans did in, in, in 2011, it, it pales by comparison. But I think it all is, it, it's all wrong. I agree. So let's talk a little bit about the path um, to more fair redistricting. 
who should draw the electoral maps? There's all kinds of ways. As you know, in most places, it's state legislatures that draw the maps, and that's why there's as much gerrymandering as there is. In some states, there's independent commissions, right. such as Arizona. California has a novel uh, body uh, supported by Governor Ar Arnold Schwarzenegger, then Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, among all, uh, all people, in which tens of thousands of regular citizens apply to be on the Citizens Redistricting Commission. They select 14 of them, five Democrats, five Republicans, four uh, independents. No, nobody can have a very close connection with, uh, with a state, with a public official. And then that body draws the map. So that's more like a kind of jury, if you like. But right. there's all, you, you could get retired judges. Mm -hmm. You could get pol uh, political scientists and mathematicians. You could have a bipartisan commission. You could do a jury thing like California. Do you think one mechanism is better than Oh, any I other? think the ideal mechanism is what you see in California, Arizona. I, I tend to uh, equate the two, um, where you have, you take politicians essentially out of it. I mean, you've got five Republicans, five Democrats, and four um, independents. The four independents are going to be the ones who decide. The Republicans are going to go one way, Democrats are going to go the other way. Um, but to have these nonpartisan, um, not bipartisan, but nonpartisan commissions, that I think is the best way to do it. Um, the one that exists in Arizona is being now uh, attacked by the Republicans. They're trying to infuse a little partisanship into that. And we have spent, I guess, $75,000 so far uh, in trying to push back on that effort. We're supporting uh, a ballot initiative that I guess will be f before the voters in Ohio, I think next week or week yeah. after next, <coughs> uh, looking also at um, the possibility of these commissions in Michigan as well as in um, Colorado. You know, only state, you can only depend, you have to do these kind of state by state. So yeah. Only state constitutions allow you to, um, to, to do these, to do it in, in, in this way. But we have to come up with a system where um, I think that is more neutral because the reality now is that we have um, politicians picking their voters <laughs> as opposed to citizens choosing who their representatives are, are, are going to be. And you've seen Democrats cut deals with Republicans so that, you know, incumbents are, are, are simply protected without any regard for, um, you know, what the wishes are of, you know, a particular constituency. Yes. Um. And that's an um, important norm, a bedrock principle of democracy, that it's citizens should pick their representatives, it's not It's supposed to be. You know, that's, yeah. kind of, that's what it's supposed to and work. You know? So even if we fixed all of the maps in the country, American democracy would still be far from perfect. Yeah. And one way it would be very imperfect is that a shockingly small number of Americans actually vote. So 56% of the voting age population turned out in the 2016 presidential election. So we're ahead of Slovenia, Chile, Japan, and Turkey, but behind everybody else in the OECD. We're 28 out of 35, right. roughly, right. in OECD in terms of, of voting age participation turnout. Mm -hmm. So a couple questions there. Why do you think that is? Why aren't we, go we're supposed to be the country that's the champion of democracy. Why are so few people participating in this basic democratic institution, and that's a first question. Second is, do you think it would be good? We're going to have a, a meeting, a discussion on Thursday about getting to 80%. It's kind of the moonshot of electoral participation. What would it take mm -hmm. to get that voting age participation from 56 to 80%? Do you think it would be good if that many people participated? A bunch of them probably wouldn't know that much about politics. They might 
vote the wrong way. So two questions, why and would it be good? I, see, I actually have a, a great deal of faith in the American people, and I'd like to have more citizens participating, more citizens voting. Um, I, you know, I, yeah, people have different degrees of um, knowledge when it comes to what we might consider you know, the most relevant of issues. Not everybody comes to this wonderful you know, institution. Um, but I, I've got faith that you know, the American people at, at, at a base level um, make appropriate decisions. And I think you're right, though. We have to increase the number of people um, who are participating. And I think y the first thing is to look at, well, you know, why are elections generally held on the, was the first Tuesday in November? I mean, you know, this is because people had to get to market. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. You had to get to market, you know, some 19th century. People are not, I don't, I haven't seen many, you know, horse-drawn carriages here and people, people bringing crops into, into Boston uh, from the airport. Now, maybe that does happen. I don't know. Um, <laughs> And so we, you know, we're kind of married to a system that might have been necessary back in the in the 1800s, but is not one that we need now. So, if you're going to pick a day, it would seem you'd do it on a Saturday when people didn't have work obligations. But I think the better answer, let's you can want to keep that, that that Tuesday in November. Let's just expand the amount of days, the number of days that people can um, actually cast a ballot. There's no indication, as too many Republicans have said, well, that'll voter fraud and all that kind of stuff. You know, I mean, uh, you know, I'm going to get real partisan now. Um, w one of the things I think the Democrats stand for is that we want to have increased numbers of people voting. Um, Republicans, given what they have done, especially over the last decade with uh, these voter ID laws based on this notion of voter fraud, are trying to keep numbers of people away from the polls. So one party is for mass participation. The other party is saying, well, you know, let's keep certain groups of people, um, you know, out of, the, out of the voting process. So I think, you know, expanding the number of voting days. And then also um, about 25% of the voting age population is not registered to vote. Yes. And so coming up with ways in which we can make it easier for people to, to register. You know, you get a license to drive, you get, you know, you, you're going to be automatically registered. Um, North Carolina had a thing where they had uh, juniors and seniors automatically, uh, you know, when they come of age, they automatically were, were uh -huh. registered. Republicans did away with that one. Um, you know, like, really? I mean, <laughs> what, you know, what's that all about? Uh, except that young people tend to be more progressive. Um, and so if, if there are a number of ways in which we can just increase the number of people who are registered, then increase the days that people um, can cast a ballot, I think you could knock that number up pretty, uh, pretty dramatically. Good. And there's, I'm sure there's many other things we could do as well. One of them that you don't hear much discussion about in the United States is compulsory voting, to actually give people <laughs> a speeding ticket or something if they don't vote. More than 20 countries around the world have compulsory voting laws, places like Australia, Brazil, Belgium, Ooh. for example. What do you think about that possibility? And it wouldn't even, you know, $5. $5. $5 fine, yeah. $5 fine. I think it probably worked better if you gave somebody $5 <laughs> if they vote. In fact, that's been done before, but no, we don't want to <laughs> go back. We don't so want to well. go there. Um, I'm not so sure I, I like the idea of compulsory voting because in some ways, in, although I think everybody... Um, especially given the sacrifices that people made, uh, the lives that were, um, w were lost to make sure that people had the right to vote. Um, I don't think I'd want to make it compulsory, but I think voting obviously is very, um, very important. But 
people, I think, have, you know, you, you can also make a statement by not voting, um, by, say, you know, saying th the process is, is corrupt, the choices are terrible, um, I'm not going to, I'm not going to participate in, in, in the system. And so, you know, I have grudging respect for somebody who truly believes that as opposed to, I don't want to get up early, I don't want to sure. wait in line, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's cold outside, it's rainy. Um, so I'm, I don't think compulsion would be a, a, is, is a good element to put in yeah. into the system. Good. So where'd, you, where'd you come up with that idea? <laughs> well, 20 other countries 20 do other it. countries. I'm don't. told that in Brazil, you have to vote but there's about four or five different ways in which you can register not voting, not voting. for the major. You're like, uh, none of the above, or right, I don't like right. any of that. You know, so Alfred E. Newman. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. You all wouldn't know who Alfred E. Newman is. I think only too a young, few people. Too, too young, too young, too young. Uh, too young. Mad Magazine. It's really funny. Check it out. Okay. All right, all right. <laughs> all right, so uh, let's move on to uh, Russia investigation. Mm-hmm. Um, that wasn't the best segue I've ever heard, you know, it was a... I, I wanted to punctuate, punctuate it, kind of punctuate mean it right people. turn there, you know. Provide the all right, all right. chapter division for right. folks. So uh, a few months ago, I uh, began to ask a cocktail party question. Uh, do you think that Bob Mueller will be able to complete his investigation by not being fired, by submitting a report? Mm -hmm. A few months ago, almost everyone I asked said, yes, of course, otherwise it would be a constitutional crisis. I've kept asking the question, and I haven't plotted it out, but in recent days, it feels more like a t coin toss. People say, mm -hmm. like, 50-50. Mm -hmm. What do you think the odds are that Robert Mueller will be able to complete the investigation in support of... I'm not sure I come up with any numbers, but I feel that there's a, there's a, a disturbing inevitability, I almost feel. I don't, you, know, you know, it's hard to quantify that um, as Bob, and I've known, you know, Bob Mueller, I don't know, 25, 30 years, as he does the complete job that I know he's going to do, um, it will almost inevitably draw him into the conduct of the president before he was president and what he was doing in, in Russia, if only for contextual reasons, but I think it'll probably be more, even more relevant than that. And I think if you take the president at his word, um, that is a, a, a red line. Um, the recent Cohen... Um, you know, search warrants and all, all that happened there, um, I think maybe lead you in that, potentially lead you in that direction as well. And I think uh, that increases, I think, in a very dramatic way, um, the possibility that uh, he could be dismissed and that we would then be in, you know, a constitutional, uh, constitutional crisis. So let's uh, delve into that a little bit more, into what that would look like and flip it around a little bit. Suppose you were still attorney general, and a special... And Trump was president? <laughs> um, uh, I Think don't know about that president. one, folks. You get to decide who, whether or not you want to take the job. So I, I don't know who's president. I don't think I'd take as much yeah. as Jeff Sessions has. Yeah. Yeah, there'd, be, right. there'd be a real constitutional crisis there. Right there. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. I wouldn't hit the president. I wouldn't hit the president. No. Um, I wouldn't advise that. Protection. Secret Service protection. Yeah. Um, so the scenario... Is, is the obvious one is that uh, special counsel has been uh, appointed to investigate your president. Your president orders you to fire the special counsel. Has happened at least once in U.S. history. We'll see if it happens again. Uh, can you explain to the audience, most of whom I think are not lawyers, what would be some of the lines that, the special, that that special counsel would have to cross before the point at which you would 
fire them rather than resign as I mean, you know, you'd have to have, I think, some kind of misconduct in office, um, some kind of indication of malfeasance by the, um, by the special counsel. And in the absence of that, you know, an order from the president to fire um, an, otherwise, an, an acting appropriately um, special counsel is something that an attorney general simply has to say no. Um, uh, we were talking about this before. The yeah. As attorney general, you get to put five uh, portraits of your predecessors up in your, um, in your office and in the conference room. And one of the ones I had was Elliot Richardson. And he was there to remind me that, um, you know, being attorney general, um, you have a, a great deal of responsibility and your main obligation is to the system. Pat Leahy uh, was chairman of the Judiciary Committee, and he said, you have to understand, as you're the Attorney General of the United States. You're not the Secretary of Justice, and there's a difference <laughs> between the AG and any other cabinet member. And uh, Richardson's portrait was there to remind me that if I ever got an order that um, I didn't think was appropriate, mm. I had to remember that uh, my obligation to the system was more important than my retention of the job. And obligation to the president then by extension. Or yeah, and, and that was one of the good things about working with um, Harvard graduate uh, Barack <laughs> Obama. Um, <laughs> pretty good school, pretty good school. He, um, he's a whole bunch of things, but he's also a very good lawyer who recognized that the best justice departments are the ones that are the most independent. And uh, I actually think that he leaned too far over and his administration leaned, his White House leaned too far in the other direction where there were things we certainly could have spoken about that they were reluctant to ask um, about. When I made the decision to uh, not defend the Defense of Marriage Act, yes. um, I, we were at a, this is all gonna be in my book, so I shouldn't be sharing this. Um, I, we, it was a Super Bowl party at the White House, and um, I wanted to tell him, so he didn't read about it in the newspapers on Monday or whatever, you know, about we're not defending DOMA, and so I, told him that, and um, he said, man, well, you know, I was trying to figure out how could I possibly let you know what I wanted you, he agreed with the decision, but was trying to figure out a way in which he might appropriately tell me <laughs> that was his, his view. And so that gives you a sense of um, at least how that president viewed his Justice Department as opposed to this president telling his Justice Department to go out and investigate, you know, people. That's a remarkable difference in uh, stance toward the rule of law and judicial independence. Yeah, yeah. Um, so public trust in government. Uh, a lot of people right now, as you know, public trust in government is at uh, nearly an all-time low. So when uh, John F. Kennedy was president, about 75% of the population said they can trust the federal government to do what's right all the time or most of the time. Now it's more like 20, 25%. It's quite low. Many people trace... 20, 25%? Yeah, many people... That's probably, I think it's a little higher. I think it's a little higher well, than that. Well, that's probably double uh, what people think about Congress. Yeah, so. right. It, yeah, it is. Haven't Congress reached that level yes. yet. Uh, many people think that turn began at, at Watergate, the Vietnam mm -hmm. War, but also Watergate as a, uh, as a cascading point at which the public institutions were falling apart. There was some deep corruption there. It seems possible that whatever the outcome of the Russia investigation is, it'll be another turning point. I mean, it's hard to imagine it going much lower than it is right now, but, but it could. And uh, whatever the result of the investigation is, this may be another watershed moment in yet another ratchet down of public distrust in 
government and public institutions. If it is, what would you advise Bob Mueller, the Republicans, the Democrats, everybody, what would you advise them to do to minimize that long-term damage? I mean, everybody's thinking about the short term, whether they're pro-Trump or anti-Trump. What about the long game, trust in our institutions? Well, let's assume that the investigation leads to, and I'm just, this is hypothetical, I'm not predicting this, but let's just assume that this led to the removal of the president, you know, an impeachment proceeding, something along those lines. Um, I, I think that that would certainly have a short-term negative impact on trust in government, I suppose, you know, a constitutional crisis, whatever. But that would also show that our institutions held that um, an independent investigation um, could be had and that the most powerful person in the land could have, was, held, um, was held accountable. So in some ways, I would see out of that negative um, thing, that negative crisis, th there would be a positive side to it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I understand how people get um, jaded or have, uh, ha have this, this lack of, of confidence when you start with, I think it goes further back. I mean, from the, you know, the, the Kennedy assassination and the lack of uh, trust in the, the, the Warren Commission, obviously Watergate, Iran-Contra, you know, l later on. Um, Vietnam War and the, uh, the things we found out about uh, what the government did not tell us. Um, but so, so that's, I think that's the way I would, I would, I would try to have people look at um, that potential, that potential outcome, you know, that the, that the institutions, the institutions help. Yeah. On the other side of it, is Robert Mueller playing too much hardball? A lot of people criticize the, I mean, it wasn't him. It was the Southern District of New York that executed the search warrant on, uh, on Michael Cohen's uh, office and apartment. Uh, a lot of people would consider that a kind of hardball, constitutional hardball, really pushing the line that damages the institutions. Do you think yeah, it's too I much hardball? No, I don't think so. I mean, I, I think you have to understand that that decision to go into a lawyer's office is not one that an individual United States attorney can do under the DOJ regulations. That has to be approved in Washington, usually at the criminal by the assistant attorney general of the criminal division. Now, I don't know this, but my suspicion is that uh, the deputy attorney general probably signed off on that um, on that the raid, I guess, in those, the search warrants in, the, in those three places of uh, Mr. Cohen. Uh, there's a great respect for um, the attorney-client privilege under you know, DOJ regulations, and I think historically has proven to, be, um, proven to be the case, and it's an extraordinary thing um, to do that. So I don't think, but I don't think that um, this was inappropriate hardball. I mean, this is a serious investigation. You want to get to the bottom of it. Bob did, Bob Mueller did the right thing, I think, by, you know, referring it to the Southern District of New York and the determination was made there that um, this, uh, these search warrants in those three places, um, you know, was appropriate. I think, and as I said, people in Washington had to sign off on it. Very good. So uh, several media outlets have reported that you're considering a presidential run in 2020. Uh, in the few responses that you've had to that question, you've echoed the theme of unifying America and moving beyond the divisive period that we're in um, as one reason why you might run. Uh, first question is, might you run? And then second question is, what would you do to unify? Things seem even more divided than when 
uh, well, than the last couple of presidents, for sure. I mean, well, what I've said is that I'm, I'm thinking about this, and I'll decide, I think, sometime, you know, next year. Um, but I, at this point, I wouldn't say I'm more likely to do it than not. I'm, I, I'm, I'm thinking about it. Um, so just thinking about it. Um, <laughs> but unifying the country, you know, I, I think that um, this is a country that still has um, common interests and um, we're still a nation of enduring values. And there's a, there's a basis, I believe, for us to, um, to recognize that. And I think that was, uh, that was the magic of the Obama candidacy in 2008. Um, people, I think, tend to forget how, how magical it, it was in, in, in some ways. There was this notion of hope and, and, and change. Um, and, and unity. Now, you know, 2008 is almost like a thousand years ago now. I mean, we're in a, you know, we're in a fundamentally different, um, fundamentally different situation. But I'm still optimistic that um, if you have leaders who um, appeal to the people in appropriate ways um, and focus on that which binds us as opposed to that which divides us, uh, that you can, even in these fractured times, um, bring about greater unity than we see now. I mean, this is a loud country, you know? We're, you know, we're loud when it comes to politics, we're loud when it comes to sports. Um, <laughs> that's, that's, that's the beauty of this country. You know, we're loud about um, the things that we care most about, you know, politics uh, among them. But um, that doesn't mean that um, because we're yelling at one another that uh, we can't reach common ground and that we can't, um, at the end of the day, be more unified than, uh, than we are now. So uh, I believe that we are living in a historic moment, for better, for worse. If you did decide to run for president in 2020 and Boy, won he's the he's general... not giving this up. <laughs> one more question on this. Then roll the tape forward to 2050. What would... We have some historians in the audience. What would you want a historian to write about as your signal achievement? What's really important? You mean assuming I won? Yeah, you win the general. Oh. I'm already predicting that you win the general. All right, well, first, he was a two-term president. <laughs> um, how about this? Let's, 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 how about, let's put it this way. What would I want historians to say in 2050 about Eric as attorney general? How about that? Oh, that's, 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 you know, I, I'm not committed to question. this. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to think that maybe people would say um, he didn't lose the common touch, that um, he stayed uh, the person that he was growing up in, you know, born in the Bronx, growing up in Queens, um, in New York City, um, that um, wasn't, he wasn't afraid to ask uh, difficult questions, um, make hard decisions, face hard truths, um, and it maybe left the country a little more fair, um, a little more just, um, infused with a little more um, equity. The, the nation was a little more equitable uh, after uh, after he left. I mean, that would be an amalgam of that would be yeah. uh, what I'd hope what people say about my time as uh, as AG. Very good. I think they will say that. Last question before right. we like open it up. Uh, so John McCain's book is coming out mm -hmm. in uh, later this month or in in uh, later in May. Uh, some of the excerpts are out. Uh, in one part of the book, he writes, he asks. When did politics become the principal or only attribute that we used to judge people? Republicans and Democrats can be good neighbors, loving parents, loyal Americans, and decent human beings. 
So my last question before we open it up is, who's your favorite Republican? Hmm, that's an interesting question. Because um, I, I immediately come to those who I can't stand. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, there are people who I think are, uh, I think I'm just kind of thinking about congressional, the congressional folks I interacted with who I think are, you know, I disagree with, you know, ideologically we're on different poles. Mike Lee from, from yeah. Utah, yeah. Um, principled person. Um, John McCain. Um, <laughs> I've had interesting phone conversations with, uh, w with Senator McCain. <laughs> um, he's a very interesting, uh, interesting guy. Um, Jim Sensenbrenner um, from Michigan, congressman who, um, you know, we, we had some, you know, really go some back and forth on, on, on some issues, but he's a, a person who has stood for um, remaking um, the Voting Rights Act after the disastrous Shelby County yes. decision in the Supreme Court. Um, so, yeah, I mean, people, I, I mean, I, those are just, you know, some of the folks. Uh, you know, Chuck Grassley, I think, you know, chairman of the Judiciary Committee can actually, uh, he at times, you know, I, I you know, I, I don't, his staff, I'm not, I'm not a fan of his staff, but I like, <laughs> I like Senator, I like Senator, I like Senator, Senator Grassley. Um, so yeah, there, yeah, there, there are a few. There's kind of people capable, principal, but, and not your principles, but capable yeah. of working together. Yeah, yeah. Very good. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you very much. So why don't we open it up now for people who uh, have been to the forum, know the routine. There are four microphones. Uh, at two up there and two on the floor here. And uh, the rules of the forum are uh, one question per customer, uh, introduce yourself, and every turn has to be an actual question, which means that what you say ends with a question mark. Shaniqua. Uh, good evening. Um, so since this country, or oh, at the You gotta say who you are, you oh, gotta say who Oh, you sorry, you just said my name. Uh, Shaniqua McClendon, I'm a second year MPP student here at the Kennedy School. Um, but so when this country was founded, it was pretty much founded um, on excluding people of color or non-white people from, from its democracy. And I think you could still argue that now with a lot of the gerrymandering that's going on. So in light of that, how do you encourage and make people of color feel like they should participate and are able to participate in this democracy? And if they can't, what are the implications of that? Well, I think, well, the implications of people not being able to participate, being prevented from um, participating, that really gets at the core of our democracy. And you cannot call it a true democracy if there is, um, if there are m attempts to exclude people from, um, you know, the citizen decision-making that is the right of every, um, of every American. You know, but what I would say to people of, of color, and especially to African-Americans, is that, you know, if anybody doesn't vote, uh, we were talking about the, the, the relatively low number there. You do, you disrespect people who gave their lives. Who, you know, people say to me, oh, well, you had a tough time, Eric. It was such a, oh, such a, you know, tumultuous time as attorney general. It's like, really? I mean, <laughs> you think about what, you know, Dr. King, um, Ralph Abernathy, uh, those three civil rights workers, you know, um, in Philadelphia, Mississippi, who were there to register people to vote, you know, Viola Liuzzo. Um, these are heroes and heroines uh, of mine. They, there's a direct line between my time as the first African-American attorney general, Barack Obama's um, tenure as first African-American president, to their efforts. And um, 
you can't change anything if you don't participate in the process. And the way citizens participate in the process at the, the, the most basic of levels is to, uh, is to vote. But I also think that we have uh, a responsibility as citizens to do more, um, that we need to be more civically engaged. I call this kind of a new American engagement. And I think you see the beginnings of it in reaction to the Trump presidency, and that might be the silver lining to um, what I think is really kind of an awful time for, um, for, our, for our country. Um, so yeah, I, I think that uh, African Americans, um, other people of color, um, given how, you know, the way, the imperfect way in which this nation was founded and is still in the process of trying to get to that more perfect union, um, have to be, have to be people who will cast a ballot, who will wait in lines, you know? Um, if, the, if you, know, you don't have adequate numbers of polling places in your district, you certainly gotta protest that, but if it comes down to that, and you gotta wait in line for four hours, you have to do that, because at, at, at the end of the day, you're more likely then to put people in place who will have, the next time around, adequate numbers of um, machines and, and, and polling places within, uh, within a district. Thank you. Thank you. Up here, sir. Good evening. My name is DeMarquin Johnson. I'm a joint degree student here at the Kennedy School and at Harvard Law School. And my question is about the relationship between the executive branch and the legislature. You're no stranger to a hostile Congress uh, during your role as attorney general. Been watching TV. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I'm wondering, what, are your, what is your philosophy or the principles you, during your position, went by when it comes to when Congress should give discretion to the executive branch or when the executive branch should answer to Congress. And in case your answer is that the judiciary should decide, how do you work around the innate partisanship within the judiciary branch? Yeah, you know, I, I, I actually think that powers, the best way for the branches, executive branch, legislative branch, to kind of figure things out is to do what has traditionally been done. You know, a lot of bluster, a lot of threats, and we're not gonna do this. We're but at the end of the day, you sit down in a, you know, in a conference room and you kind of work your way through, you know, appropriate accommodations. Um, and, you know, there's, you know, I think both branches have to realize that they are, that they're co-equal, um, that they have unique responsibilities. The legislative branch has oversight, obviously, over the, over the executive. The executive has to, you know, execute the laws. Um, there's a way in which the branches can coexist. It has become so political, though, that um, I think the legitimate roles that each branch is supposed to play kind of gets obscured by the politics. Uh, I was held in contempt by the House of Representatives for not turning over some documents that reflected internal um, executive branch deliberations about how we were gonna interact with Congress. Um, that in the old days is something, I mean, I was Janet Reno's deputy attorney general and they were gonna hold her in contempt. And you know, we ultimately sat down in a room, figured it out, gave them a few documents, they were happy and you know, we were totally unhappy and it went away. <laughs> um, this one, you know, with me, there was a decision that they wanted to make an example of this guy. Um, and when we found out that the NRA was gonna score that vote, then it became clear what was going on. This wasn't about legitimate um, congressional oversight. This was about you know, an, an exertion of, of power, of you know, the, the gun lobby saying that you know, this guy should be held in, in, in contempt. 
And so that's kind of where we are now. And so I think both sides have to kind of retreat from those positions if they can. I'm worried though, I mean, if you look at this House um, in Intel, the House Intel in Intelligence Committee report, um, you know, that essentially exonerates the president. Um, and it has such obvious and gaping holes. And um, Devin Nunes, the, the, the chairman, has, you know, recused himself, but now he's still in, and, you know, it becomes, it's almost farcial in a way, you know, what they have, uh, what they have done. And I think they've done great damage to um, a committee. You know, I've testified in, in, bunch in front of a whole bunch of committees. When you went to the Intel committees, you know, just behind closed doors, there are no TV cameras, and there the partisanship tended to, to melt away. And um, that is not where we are now with regard to at least the House Intel Committee. I think Senate Intel Committee is probably in a, in a different place, but it worries me a great deal that the House Intel Committee, when it was run by Mike Rogers, Republican, um, Dutch Ruffelsberger, a Democrat from, from Maryland. Um, they did it the way their predecessors always had. You know, you just kind of, what are the facts? You know, what are the, what are the in intelligence equities that we need to be concerned about? Yes, up here. Hi, my name's Hannah. I'm a freshman from the college. Um, and I was actually wondering, so it's been in the news a lot lately, corporate mergers and how the Trump Justice Department is handling those. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about how you would handle the, for example, the Time Warner AT&T merger if you were still Attorney General, and what your philosophy is towards that in general. Yeah, the lens that we always looked at, um, looked through when we were considering mergers was what was the impact going to be on consumers, um, and tried to you know look, you know, not in a kind of. Acad purely academic, um, you know, a, a real-world way. What's, what was the impact of a merger going to be um, on, on consumers? Um, you know, and, and so when there were airline mergers that were being considered, um, I, I think our instinctive reaction was that these are probably not good things. Um, but then when you looked at them in a real-world sense and you saw, you know, what the imp what how. Uh, airlines were were bleeding money, um, you know, not being successful, um, and the need for you know strong, at least you know three, four strong airlines as opposed to six, seven, eight weak ones, whatever. Uh, we didn't think that the impact on consumers there was going to be um, so bad that we couldn't, um, taking into account the health of the industry, that we couldn't approve the mergers. Now, you know, Time Warner. Um, that's one again that I would I'd look and see. Well, what, how is what, this going to impact the choices of people, consumers? Um, am I still going to be able to get Netflix, you know, at the appropriate speed, um, you know, on my, you know, on my computer? Um, am I going to have to pay through the nose because I want to watch, you know, um, Westworld, you know? On, on <laughs> I'm betraying a few things here. <laughs> Billions is a great show on Showtime. Um, you know, I mean, those are the kinds of real-world things. And you have these experts in the antitrust division who, um, who are non-lawyers, who can really kind of, you know, work all of this stuff out and uh, present, you know, you look at the legal case, but then they have these experts who can really kind of tell you um, what the expected consumer impact are, uh, impacts are going to be. And so that's, I think, the, and I still think that's the best way to look at these things. You know, what's the impact going to be on, uh, on, on consumers? Hi, uh, my name is Ben Bolger, and I'm a Harvard alum. And I have a kind of a theoretical question for you about voting participation. There's a lot of instances where people um, 
reside legally in one area, but their, their actual life is another place. For example, people might live in New Jersey or Connecticut, but they spend most of their waking hour working and living effectively in New York City, or in this case, people might live in Rhode Island or New Hampshire, but effectively work in Boston or Cambridge. A lot of examples like that. Should we rethink how people participate as voters? Should it be based on their legal residence, or should we be more creative in how we view stakeholders and voters in, in cities and other locations? It's interesting. Uh, I, I guess I'm a kind of a traditionalist, and I, I like the idea of people voting where they live. Um, and I guess my thought would be that that's probably the place that you care the most about, you know. Um, if I lived in New Hampshire, you know, worked in Boston, you know, I, I want to make sure that Boston's a great city, you know, that's fine. Um, I want it to be, you know, safe, and I want to be able to, you know, have you know, good transportation system, but I'm going to care most about, you know, the schools in New Hampshire where my kids um, are going to get educated. Um, I'm going to care most about, you know, what's going to happen to the main asset I probably have, which is my house. Um, so I think I'm, I'd be a, a little wary of, uh, of changing the way in which we, w which we do that. But that's actually a pretty interesting it's actually kind of interesting, though. So I hadn't really thought about that before. Yeah. Very good. Yes, over here. My name is Kyle Burtson, and I'm a dual degree candidate with the medical school and the Kennedy School. And uh, you've mentioned that gerrymandering is one of the issues facing democracy right Wait, now. Wait, you're doing medical school and Kennedy School? That's, that's correct, yeah. Wow. Whoa, okay. <laughs> so is <it> yeah, yeah. <laughs> pretty impressive. <laughs> And so is he, so. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you mentioned gerrymandering is one of the issues facing democracy. And I'm wondering, uh, 538 re released an article uh, stating self-sorting and extremism as some of the issues instead of gerrymandering um, that could lead to there being disproportionate representation. Uh, so what, what initiatives are the NDRC undertaking uh, in order to combat self-sorting, extremism, and any other issues? Well, you know, self-sorting extremism, I mean, I, you know, I'm not totally sure I, I understand understand, does it mean, does it mean the residential, how people, where people live? Right, so that impacting, um, I guess, what people vote for. Yeah, you know, th there's, a, there's an article written by Ari Berman that I would urge everybody to look at. It's called The Five Myths of, of, of Gerrymandering. And one of them is this notion that it, um, gerrymandering is simply a, fu or this packing of districts or the way in which, where, the place where people lives, where people live, is really, um, a prime determinant in, you know, uh, how lines are drawn or, you know, all, all Democrats are all, all, all urban and therefore, you know, th that's not really the, the case. I mean, yeah, how, where people live um, obviously has an impact on um, how lines should be drawn, but um, gerrymandering, you know, goes way beyond the kind of self-sorting that people do and, um, you know, kind of puts the self-sorting on steroids to come up with effects that are, um, I, I would say, inappropriate, and hopefully after the Supreme Court rules, hopefully in June, uh, hopefully will be deemed illegal. Um, but I, I, I would really urge you to read, read that article, because uh, one of the things that he talks about is this notion that um, uh, because Democrats are, you know, largely seen as urban creatures, um, that's a huge, a huge component uh, of, uh, of the, you know, of why we have the representational system that we do. It's, it's simply, it really is, is, is not as big a factor as people think. Yes, up here. 
Hi, um, my name is Jin. I'm a senior at the college. And I'm also from Queens, which I didn't know about you. Um, <laughs> but East so, Elmhurst. I'm from Flushing. There you go. That's <laughs> close by. Um, Q48 from my house. To, that's yeah. right. I don't actually know if that line exists anymore. But um, <laughs> Whoa. 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 Just throwing shade here, man. Wait. 76 all the way. No, tough um, audience. Hey, here. Queens. You know what? It's <laughs> kidding. It's kidding. Um, okay, so I actually have a... Um, I know people in the administration. <laughs> what year are you? I'm a senior. I'm a senior. You are? Senior, senior at the college. Senior, yeah. senior. Um, You're going to enjoy that extra year. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, okay, so I actually have, a, I have a, I think, a complicated question. So I'm actually a, a DACA recipient, so I'm an undocumented immigrant. Um, and so I think, obviously, the title of the talk today is Making Every Voice Count. And obviously, I think, from my perspective, that one of the assumptions is that everyone is at the table from a perspective of equality in terms of the justice and how, they're, uh, how justice is administered. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that my community, that, that I and the undocumented community has experienced immigration enforcement was very, it seems to be very political in that because the immigration courts um, are, all, are ultimately under the direction of the attorney general, which is obviously a political appointment. I mean, it shouldn't be, but obviously mm-hmm. a lot of these norms are being broken, that the way that we experience enforcement is actually just a political tool. So I'm wondering, my question is, what are some legislative tools or what are some legislative guardrails that we can advocate for um, that kind of put guardrails against immigration enforcement being used as a political tool. Because, I mean, I, th- I think the actual question is whether or not we're going to treat a subset of Americans, this in this case being immigrants, as a separate category because they're immigrants. And a lot of Republicans talk about this as a national security issue. But I'm wondering, like, what, how, how you think we can kind of Engaged, engage the le- legislative kind of side of the federal government to make sure that this doesn't really happen as a political yeah. tool. I mean, I, I think, you know, we've spent a lot. What was that? <laughs> oh, okay, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. It's probably after the Q48 yeah, 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 line. Q48, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Desus and Mero, I was on that show. I, I like that, right. The, um, you know, we spent, we have focused a lot of time, and I think appropriately so, on a, a resolution of the DACA issue. Um, I think that what we tried to do there was appropriate, and the opposition by Republican state attorneys general, um, and now by this administration, is really just, um, that is, I think, in some ways, politics at its worst. It was an, it's an attempt to um, stoke a base and um, it's fundamentally unfair. And, you know, you talk about gerrymandering. You know, the, the, the majority of the American people are on behalf of, you know, stand with DACA recipients. And yet, because of gerrymandering, um, Republicans who, even though they might have, you know, people in their district, majority of people in their district who support uh, DACA recipients, they don't have to work, they don't have to listen to them because they're in safe districts. And that's how, you know, that's how... You know, you have the ability, you have um, how the will of the people does not therefore get expressed. So I think we should focus on on DACA, but I think, you know, we, we can't lose sight of where we almost were, which is to have come up with a comprehensive immigration bill. And I think your, your focus on legislation makes a great deal of sense. You know, it was the gang of aid or whatever it was. Um, we need to solve this issue because it's larger than simply the DACA recipients. There's a huge undocumented pop-
population here in the United States that really is part of the fabric of this country. I mean, these are folks who are, um, you know, just parts of our communities. They're our neighbors, you know? Um, we work with them. Um, they do a variety of, you know, they, they contribute to this country in the way that immigrants always have. And this is something that really gets me, you know, this notion that um, immigration is bad or that other countries send their worst to us, you know, as the, the president said in his, uh, when he announced his candidacy. The reality is that the best, best people from other countries are the ones who come here. I mean, who would uproot themselves, go across oceans, whatever, or come through, you know, substantial amounts of la land um, to take jobs that are probably, you know, relatively low on the socioeconomic scale, um, deal with, you know, um, ethnic, racial, economic um, discrimination. Um, you know, those are the people, um, this is my father, this is my grandparents. Um, these are the people who revitalize this nation, you know, um, keep bringing new ideas, new thoughts, new ways of doing things into the nation. It, you know, more homogenous, staid nations are at, I think, a competitive disadvantage compared to the United States because of our, uh, the immigrant flow and our immigrant heritage. And something I think people need to understand here, it, unless you are uh, descended from the indigenous people, you know, Native Americans, um, you are of immigrant stock. If your folks came over on the Mayflower, guess what? Those were immigrants. Now, the question is, you know, just how far back do you go? I say my father, my grandparents. Um, but everybody in this room, unless, as I said, you're one of the indigenous people, you are of, of immigrant stock. And um, the notion that we would turn our back on that heritage, which has made this nation great, which has kept this nation great, um, I think we do so at our peril, and we give up. We give up a competitive advantage that we have against other nations in the 21st century. Very good. We have time for just one more question up here. Okay. Hello, thank you for coming. I'm Akinwande Lalude. I'm in the MPID program here at the Kennedy School. This is the Development Economics Program. Okay. And uh, you're I'm not going to be a doctor, also. No, close, but <laughs> no, no, no. And I'm not, gonna ask you, I'm not going to ask you if you're going to run for president either. So it's, it's going to be a little bit of a different question. Um, so you, you were working with uh, Uber on doing an investigation into the Me Too um, issue. And I was just wondering, um, kind of in a theoretical sense, if, if you were talking to an organization and they had hired somebody who was like the target of uh, sexual harassment, and that person wasn't hired because of the quality of their work, but specifically to be a target by their manager of sexual harassment. I was wondering, um, from the perspective of both an investigator and an attorney general, how would you handle the fairness in that situation if the company wanted to fire that person because they weren't hired to do the job, they were just hired as some other manager's, you know, like, target? Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I think a lot would depend on how the person who was hired was treated during that person's time in the company. Um, if the person was wholly unqualified, I don't think that 
that person should necessarily have to stay in the company. I mean, I'm, talk, I'm not talking about wholly unqualified now, stay in the company. On the other hand, if that person was a member of the company for you know, some period of time and suffered harassment um, from that manager, well, I, I would think that person is entitled to some kind of, you know, some kind of compensation. Um, and I would also think that, you know, you say wholly unqualified, I, I'd want to think that, you know, if that person um, in good faith thought that he or she could contribute to the company, that maybe you want to offer training to them so that they have an ability to perhaps contribute to, to that company. Now, you'd want to toss that manager out as quickly, you know, as you can as, and as you know, openly as you can so that people understand that that's not the way in which, um, you know, this company, uh, this company operates. Um, but you wouldn't want to also re-victimize somebody who's brought in and then has to deal with this, this you know, this, n this knothead manager um, and then lose their job as well. If that, so come up with, you know, creative ways. Compensation kind of, I think, as kind of as a, as a baseline but then maybe come up with creative ways in which um, you might make that person, um, you know, uh, qualified to contribute to, uh, to, to the company. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, Thank you. So we'll do one more question because we've got another doctor. <laughs> uh, my name is Ellen. Kennedy School, medical school. Yes, sir. And I apologize. What else? <laughs> Rocket scientist. Rocket um, scientist. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Astrophysics, <laughs> you know. Uh, my name is Ellen, as, is, as, um, as Dean Funk said, I am a student at the medical school in the Kennedy School. Um, and thank you for making space for this one last question. Um, and so you understand that uh, structural racism is at the core of many of the public policy problems and problems of democracy that we face as a, as a nation. Um, in fact, you've been on record as saying that we are, quote, a nation of cowards uh, when it comes to discussing and confronting the role of racism right, in let me just, our institutions. I want to interrupt here. Mm -hmm. I did say that. February 2009, Black History Month speech, I said we're a nation of cowards when it comes to discussing uh, things racial. But that speech is like, it, it's almost like I got up and said, we're a nation of cowards, thank you very much. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I actually read the speech about two, three weeks ago. It's still online, I think, at the Justice Department. The speech is actually held up pretty well, I think. And so yeah. I would urge you all to read. There's more than that one line. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I'm so sorry, I don't, so, I don't go ahead. So, so read the speech, read the speech. Um, I think you're right in saying, it, you know, it is, it is kind of a tradition of American institutions to be reluctant or explicitly aversive uh, to engage the issues, you know, from the White House to the, you know, the Attorney General's office, even to this institution, to really confront the role of racism, not just in society broadly, but specifically in terms of the public policy problems that it's trying to solve. For instance, we managed to have a conversation about voter participation without talking about mass incarceration and the racial undertones there. Or, you know, we talked about uh, the Voting Rights Act without talking about the racial undertones there. So I'm wondering, uh, in speaking to a room of current and future public leaders, what your advice would be regarding um, how to be less cowardly uh, in confronting the, the, the foundational role of racism in the problems that we face as a nation? Yeah, I think it's a real good question. The... Um we are, and as I said this in speech, we are really adept at avoiding um, racial conversation. And in some ways it's understandable given you know, how the nation was founded, the original sin of slavery, um, you know, Jim Crow uh, after that. Uh, another book I would recommend to you, Slavery by Another Name by Doug Blackman, um, that talks about you know, what it was like um, in the South, in 
the late 1800s, early 1900s, actually, you know, almost through the mid-1900s. We're good at not, we're good at at avoiding, you know, racial conversations. We're too good at avoiding racial conversations. Race is something that um, is still a factor in this nation. It's being, it's used, is being used, I think, um, you know, as as a wedge issue there, you know, with dog whistles, a whole variety of ways in which it's used. Um, And unless we ultimately confront our racial past, deal with the continuing problems um, of racial injustice and equality in our present, we're never going to have a a future that I think this nation can have, can have. Um, But that will mean some difficult conversations, and that will mean... um, you know, institutions are going to have to adjust to, um, and I think, you know, make amends for um, things that happened in, in, in the past. But it, it's more than institutions. It really comes down to an individual level a- as well, you know. But I think people on both sides of the divide have to give the other side space. Um, if you're a person of color, you have got to um, be open-minded enough to allow white folks to raise issues, raise concerns, um, you know, to be sincere in raising things that you might say, well, that's ridiculous, you know, no, no, that's not the way to react. This is, we need a dialogue. We don't need, you know, arguments about this. I mean, these can be heated dialogues. I mean, I, you know, I get that. But um, we don't get to where we need to be unless we engage in a, in a, you know, in a serious, in a very serious way. And we have not, as a nation, um, we have not, as a nation, done that. We have, we do it in fits and starts, um, but uh, it's something that I think this nation still has not, uh, has not come to grips with. And I think in every part of this nation, it's difficult to have those conversations, and um, it's not easy here at the Kennedy School, not easy at Harvard University. We're trying to do better at that. One of the norms that we're trying to inculcate a little bit is the norm of both speaking bravely but also listening generously and so that's and that's that's said much more eloquently than i did but that's exactly that's exactly the point i was trying to make that uh listening you know in in the way that you described has to be a part of that process it has to be Uh, that's the last question and so thank you very much i just all right all right let me want to do something i just want to say something all kidding aside, um, you all are the best and the brightest. You really are. Um, the kind of country that we're going to have, and we've kind of talked about, will be um, a function of what it is that you all decide to do with your lives and the role that you does decide to play um, in this country, in the shaping of this country in the, in the 21st century. Um, I think that we have... We, we, we appropriately called the last century an American century. I think this this century, this young century, can be an American century as well. But it'll only happen if people like yourselves um, find ways in which you become civically involved. You can be great doctors. Um, you know, you can be great businessmen. Um, and you know, we as Americans, I want you all to do well, but I also want you to do good. You know. And I think you have that within yourselves. Um, and the reality is that if you are not civically engaged, if you're not leading, 
people who are less bright, less idealistic, um, less committed to the principles that um, of America at its best will fill that vacuum. And that America will not be the America that it is capable of, of being. You know, Dr. King said that the arc of the moral universe is long and it bends towards justice, but it really only bends towards justice when people like you put their hands on that arc and pull it towards justice. So my hope would be that you will use the superb education that you have received um, at, this, uh, at this great institution um, and leave with a sense of purpose, a sense of obligation, a sense of responsibility. Um, you know, God gave you great brains. You had great opportunities here. Um, but with that, I think, comes a, a profound responsibility to, um, to make better, um, not only to make better this country, and if you do that, I think you'll make better th this world. But I think you have that capacity, and I don't think you should ever forget that. I think you have that capacity, um, and so I hope that um, you know, this is in some small way will maybe lead you to think about those kinds of things um, and then be the leaders that, uh, that you're capable of, capable of being and make this country, you know, we say we're going to make America great again. Well, you know, you all can make America great. You really can. You have that uh, ability. You have that responsibility. So do it. Thank you very much. You've been listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. If you'd like to learn more, please visit ash.harvard.edu or follow the Ash Center on social media at Harvard Ash.